Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Carlo Maley. He's an associate professor, part of the Biodesign Institute in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University. So we're going to talk about his research. He has he runs the Malley Lab, M-A-L-E-Y-L-A-B.org. Uh, he's primarily a cancer biologist and evolutionary biologist and computational. So Carlo, thank you for coming. Thank you. Yeah, if you would, tell me about your current research. Sure. The other thing that I spend most of my time doing is I'm the director of the Arizona Cancer Evolution Center. And I'm really interested in all things having to do with how in evolution intersects with cancer. So it, that really happens at two different levels. So within our bodies, cells are evolving, they're mutating and competing, particularly in tumors. And some of those mutations can cause a, a cancer or a precancer cell to divide faster than its competitors or survive better than its competitors, and those mutants will tend to grow. And so there's this whole microcosm of natural selection that happens in our bodies that that drives the whole process of getting cancer. And then when we apply a therapy, we end up applying what we call a selective pressure to the tumor. We kill a lot of the cells with our chemotherapies, but we select for mutants that are resistant to those chemotherapies that aren't affected by them. And those mutations are there just by bad luck, by chance. But they there are so many cells in a tumor. There's billions of cells in a tumor and so many mutations. We think millions of mutations that quite common for a mutant to be there just by accident that allows that cell to survive our chemotherapy. And then we kill most of the cells with our 
cancer cells with our therapies, but then leave behind these mutants that regrow and are resistant to the, to the drug. And then we have to use a different drug. So this whole process of natural selection happening at the cell level explains both how we get cancer and why it's been so hard to cure. So I'm very interested in both of those sides of it, the process of getting cancer and the how to deal with that cancer once we have it, how to do therapy in a more informed way, in an evolutionary way. And then I'm also interested in, in evolution of cancer at the organism level. Um, how has cancer affected the evolution of life across species um, from the very origin of multicellular bodies that, that made cancer a problem? And we can get into that if you're interested. Down through the billions of years since then um, and how different species have evolved to be more or less cancer susceptible or resistant. And we want to learn from those species that are really good at preventing cancer to see if we can uh, import those ideas into cancer prevention for humans. Well, how, how do you think cancer first started historically in uh, you know different life forms? Yeah, so this is sometimes, I ask my students this sometimes at the start of some of our classes, you know, when did cancer start? And we tend to have a very sort of human view on this because, of course, we're very concerned about cancer in humans. But it goes back to about 2 billion years ago. So before 2 billion years ago, all life on Earth was single-celled life, like bacteria. And if you think about that for a moment, there's no way for a single-celled organism to get cancer because cancer is a problem of cells of a body, of a multicellular body, dividing out of control and then killing the, the organism, the host. So cancers really only becomes a disease when you get multicellular organisms, which first evolved in algae in about 2 billion years ago and evolved in animals about 600 million years ago or so. So in fact, I think of cancer as the hurdle that had to be cleared for life to evolve multicellularity. To get a multicellular body, you have to stop the cells of the body from just dividing out of control and devote their resources to the good of the body. So there, there's probably were many initial uh, events in the evolution of multicellularity where a multicellular species started to form, organisms started to form, but cancer eventually sort of disintegrated it. It evolved back into single-celled life, but we don't really, we don't have a record of that. So it's hard to know how often that happened. But in, in any case, the critical change was this change from single-celled life to multicellular life. Was there a, uh, I mean, early on there was stromatolites, you know, billions of years ago, there's probably yeah. always been biofilms. I yeah. Mean, uh, is there really ever such a thing as, you know, singular, single cell life, or is it really a looser collection of multicells than, uh, than we yeah. are? Than a whole that's, of an interesting, that's an interesting point. So you're, you're right that single cell life, what we call single cell life, often lives in these communities like biofilms or stromatolites. And so you could you could imagine or you could think about cancer maybe as cheaters in that social system. Um, so maybe there is a form of cancer that can happen in single cell life. But the for an evolutionary biologist, the real question is, are those things acting as a unit in selection? So are some stromatolites like producing other stromatolites and you're getting selection for how to produce a stromatolite or are some biofilms breaking off and producing other bi biofilms? And is the biofilm sort of the unit at that, or can it be a unit? And in many cases, probably the answer is no. But once cells really bind themselves together in an organism, then clearly the what happens to that whole organism is determines the success of the constituent cells. Well, in cancer, for instance, at what point would you say, or would you ever say that it constitutes a separate life form? You know, if it's uh, a few cells, does it act in one way? Is it a billion cells? Is it a different way? I mean, it, at what point are there emergent properties or is there this unification within the cancer to act as one within a tumor, let's say? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So there's certainly cases of transmissible cancers where 
it looks like it's a whole new life form. So there's a, a dog cancer that's transmitted sexually that's been around for over 6,000 years. The same cancer is just being transmitted from dog to dog. And that seems to be like a parasitic life form now that we distinguish. It, it has it had original genes of a dog, but they've, they've mutated a lot. Um, and there's two Tasmanian devil cancers that are transmitted through biting. Um, and then there's some clam cancers that are trans leukemias or lymphomas that are transmitted through the the water among these sort of neighboring filter feeders. So that's that's a point where the cancer has become a, a different organism. Now within our bodies, they the cancers do kind of look like organs. They signal for the growth of new blood vessels. We don't really know, this is an open question for us, to what extent are the cancer cells cooperating with each other? And are little clusters of cancer cells acting like proto-multicellular organisms? Um, we have some research, um, really theoretical level research that we propose that probably there are little clusters of cells with some cells acting like a germline and other cells that they produce cancer cells helping to support their, their stem cells, as we call them. So there may be little formations of colonies of sort of cooperative units within the tumors. And there also may be to some extent which little metastases around the body are acting like units of selection, and you're getting selection for ability to metastasize. But those are all open questions. We don't know how much cooperation essentially is happening among cancer cells. Well, if there was no cooperation, would you have sizable metastases? Or would you have just like a shotgun blast of tiny ones, individual cell size? Yeah. So... Unfortunately, we think there probably are shotgun blasts of tiny little, we call them micrometastases that are too small to show up on our MRIs or PET scans or CAT scans. Um, but because they're so hard to detect, it's hard to know how common they are. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So some people have taken bone marrow biopsies and looked for epithelial cells in the bone marrow, which shouldn't be there. And you can find single cancer cells in the bone marrow that way, um, but they don't tend to grow. So this is sort of one of our blind spots uh, in cancer biology. We don't know to what extent there's a lot of dynamics among micrometastases that are, we're just, they're just invisible to us. But certainly sometimes it does, they do blow up into larger things that we can detect. And those are tend to be what's deadly. Well, I've seen some papers where they talk about Extra, extracellular vesicles being a you know cell to cell communication mechanism for not only healthy cells but for for cancer you know hinting yeah, the, at primary versus metastases uh, interaction yeah so they the two can sort of butt off these little vesicles that can transport proteins and and other hormones and things between cells and they're also all they do release hormones of various sorts so there was this puzzling phenomenon where sometimes you'd remove the primary tumor. And then suddenly a bunch of metastases would grow that, that you didn't know about beforehand. And it was a it was a mystery until they discovered, at least in some cases, that the primary tumor was releasing anti-angiogenic factors. So these are like hormones that suppress the growth of blood vessels. So once you remove that primary 
tumor the metastases, which could start growing blood vessels to allow them to grow large enough that we could detect them. And then the, the next question, of course, is why was the primary tumor releasing anti-angiogenic factors to suppress growth of blood vessels? Um, and that's also an open question. Well, by saying, though, that a tumor does anything, it, it's, it seems like it's implied that the tumor acts as one. Like, you yeah. know, how could how could a, a tumor release, again, anti-angiogenic or angiogenic factors, but not act as one? Right. No, that's a good point. And that's actually why I hesitated when you asked about, is it acting as a an organism? Because human, our human brains are not very good at thinking about diverse populations of things that are turning over. We tend to want to think about things as, as a unit, as an individual. So we have a bias to think about cancer as a cancer, like I have a cancer, whereas what you really have, or what I would really have, would be a diverse population of different mutant cells that are dying and dividing and changing through time. So, so the, sort of the answer to well, one potential answer to this question of why is a tumor producing a bunch of antiangiogenic hormones, you have to ask, well, why are some cells in that tumor producing that hormone? Um, and we, we refer to clones in cancer. So a clone is defined as a set of cells that all come from a common ancestor cell that share some either mutation or defining characteristic. So we think of like different clones, different sets of mutant cells in tumors that are competing and are possibly cooperating. So for example, if uh, some mutant cell starts producing an angiogenic factor to help to signal to, for growth of blood vessels into the tumor, then its neighboring cells can act like freeloaders. They get the benefit of the growth of the blood vessels without having to produce that, that hormone. Then you can ask the same question, well, maybe, so why would some mutant cells in a tumor start producing an anti-angiogenic factor? And we have a hypothesis about that, which is that they're actually trying to suppress their freeloader neighbors from getting the benefit of blood vessels. And the key here is that the half-life of anti-angiogenic factors is longer than the half-life of angiogenic factors. In other words, the, if a cell produces both factors to produce blood vessels and to suppress blood vessels, in the immediate neighborhood of that cell where its siblings are, where its closely related cells are, the angiogenic factors can dominate, but as you get further away, those decay faster. And what's left are the anti-angiogenic factors, which would suppress the, the competitors that are a little bit further away. That's, that's our hypothesis for why you get that. It's actually driven by competition between the cells and not, not the uh, whole tumor acting as a, as a unit, as a cooperative uh, collective. I mean, we have tissues that work in cooperation. We have organs. Sure. So why not consider, you know, a tumor doesn't have zero structure, even though it is heterogeneous, but it's more like, I guess, Pablo Picasso instead yeah. of a normal, uh, yeah, you know, organ. No, well, you're what if right. you took a, a tumor and put it in, you know, a dish in vitro and took off pieces of it and tried to get the pieces to seed into like, you know, tumoroids. And uh, I'm mm -hmm. sure that's been done. Like what would happen in that case? And do you see that there is a coordinated behavior? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah. So, so you're right. I mean, human cells or any animal cells, they're primed to cooperate, right? They've been millions of years of evolution to get them to, to form a highly cooperative body. So the, the tumor grows out of a, what's at a default state is cooperation, essentially. And people have found that if you grow little organoids in culture, right? So the, the traditional way of doing culture is you just put cells into a dish. It's hard to get most cells to grow, but we figured out how to do it in many cases. And they grow as this two-dimensional, just layer on top of the plastic 
dish. And then people realize that if you allow the tumors to form into little three-dimensional spheroids or little tiny organs by putting in some various gels and things, um, that the biology changes and they do form, they can form little organs in vitro. We don't have good evidence of them cooperating per se, the cancer cells, if you do that in, in vitro, but I don't think people have looked at it sufficiently to, to really address that question. Yeah. What about like the, you know, the epithelial to mesenchymal transition back? Like why mm-hmm. would that happen in mass? If uh, again, there was no coordination, you know, who would, who would undergo that transition? Who wouldn't and why? And uh, you know, why yeah. would they transition back in a metastasis? Yeah. So, right. So this transition from epithelial to this mesenchymal state where they can sort of, the, the mesenchymal state is more, uh, is not, not a proliferative state typically, um, but it's more a mobile, mobile state. So the cells can crawl away. And we think this is probably important in metastasis because one of the big steps in metastasis is cells leaving the primary tumor and sort of going somewhere else. Also just in invasion, invading neighboring tissues. So we have some work on that uh, and it comes out of ecology, actually. There's a whole background in ecology of what, in what conditions do you see evolution for organisms to, to disperse, to leave, to move? And we realized that that theory can be applied to tumors. And one of the, one of the main answers in, in ecology is that there's selection for organisms to move if their local environment is degraded, if it sucks. So if things are going badly, if the resources have been consumed, then any cell, any organisms that stick around are going to have a hard go of it. But if organisms leave, they can go find richer pastures elsewhere. And so we think this is probably happening in primary tumors that uh, we certainly see in tumors areas of necrosis where there's been such degradation of the environment or supply of oxygen that cells have died. Other areas of hypoxia, meaning low oxygen levels. And so they're stressed. And so we think that there's selection even within the primary tumors for cells to leave those areas of poor resources and go find areas of, of better resources in that that selection can lead to eventually the evolution of metastasis and this, this epithelial to mesenchymal transition. That, that whole argument I just gave you is all based at the what's advantageous for the cells, not for the collection, um, sort of for the organ, as it were. Yeah, but it's just strange, though, because why would healthy cells have this, this hierarchy? You know, when they have allegiance, let's say, to a tissue or coordinated action with it. But, you know, when they mutate, they're not totally different. Why would they lose these uh, these collaborative allegiances? I would well, think that they would retain that, you know. So they certainly have the tools there. But the question, I think the, the way to, a good way to think about it is what's advantageous for the cell? So f- for many of those those tools and those collaborations, it's actually a disadvantage for the cell. Like they're foregoing their own reproduction and producing stuff for the organ. They're stopping cell cycling and they're you know, producing stuff for the, the organ. So if you have a mutation that uh, stops that uh, cooperative behavior, that cell can then devote all of its, its resources to proliferation or survival. So I think there's a lot, there's a lot of, of the genes in our genome and a lot of the biology of our cells that are for collaboration and cooperation. And that in many cases, uh, destroying that machinery is actually advantageous for the cell, allows that cell to divide faster or survive better than its competitors. Um, And so, so the one way I think about this is that we have this, let me back up for a second. So in evolutionary biology, we have this uh, heuristic, this rule of thumb that most mutations that affect the organism are bad for the organism, that 
And that's because most organisms are well adapted to their environment. So they're, they're near perfect. They're near optimal. And so most changes you can make are actually going to make them suboptimal. But in the body, that's very different because, because of what we were just saying that, that most of what a cell does in a body is sort of cooperative and is not good for the cell per se, but is good for the body that actually many of these mutations, maybe even most of these mutations that affect the biology of a cell um, actually are going to be advantageous for the cell, um, but ultimately bad for the, the body. If you have heterogeneity in all tumors, mm-hmm. why wouldn't the heterogeneity also encompass some cells where this machinery of cooperation is turned off, but other ones where it's still kept on? I would think yeah. you'd, you'd see that too. Yeah, I do. I do. I agree with you. And we do see massive heterogeneity within these tumors. So in some cases, keeping that or having those sort of cooperation pathways turned on is going to be uh, a disadvantage for the cell. They're being used, they're being not, you know, sort of optimizing their own fitness. And in other cases, it will be advantageous. So I, for instance, cells could cooperate to help build blood vessels or to evade the immune system um, or to sort of maybe do some division of labor uh, in terms of producing factors for each other, survival factors or proliferation factors. So I, we are very interested in this, and I, I work with Athena Actipus, who's a cooperation theorist, evolution of cooperation uh, expert. Uh, so we do actually think that there is cooperation happening in the in the cancer cells, and they're probably co-opting many of those cooperation pathways that are normal for human cells. Um, and that we may start seeing the evolution of these little proto multicellular colonies or even whole tumors that are cooperative. Um, and I think that's important. And that actually leads to new ways of treating a tumor. If you could try to interfere with the ways that the cancer cells are cooperating with each other. Um, but that's, uh, that's all cutting edge open questions. Yeah. Do you know if anyone has, has taken a tumor that's spheroid, let's say, and try to map out the heterogeneity spatially? And then if you did that, could you use a computer model to go back in time to see how the tumor might have began, how many different cell types were its original constituency? Oh, I see. You can you can do this genetically in, in just normal tumors um, and ask how many different cell types generated the tumor. In almost all cases, the tumor started from a single cell, a single mutant cell. So you can see that all the cells carry that mutation. In fact, they often carry a whole bundle of mutations that are the same in all, all the cancer cells. Um, so then the question becomes, how much do they diversify into different subclones that might be uh, having sort of different biology? And I guess there's another point here, which is that even cells that have the same mutation can take on different behaviors, different phenotypes. So some could be like stem cell-like and some could be more differentiated-like. So it, it gets complicated quickly. I guess that's true for all biology. Oh, because you'd also want to look at the epigenetics of all the different cells too, and because they all yeah. contribute to phenotype, all these factors. Yeah, so you could have genetically identical cells that are taking on different phenotypes because they're different epigenetics or or just different expression states, and they may be those may be cooperating with each other, even though they're exactly the, even though they're exactly the same genotype. Maybe even because they're exactly the same genotype. Well, one more question that keep beating you up about collaborative versus uh, selfish action. Sure. How could there be immune defense if there is no collaborative action? Because it, it just seems like a single cell. How could it have a chance against the whole immune system? But uh, tumors, because I guess of microenvironments and maybe collaboration, uh, they're more effective at immune defense. Yeah, there's there's lots of different kinds of immune defense or immune evasion. Uh, one way, so the the immune system recognizes cancer cells because they start having enough mutations that they have 
non-normal proteins so they look foreign so one way to a, a cancer cell can evade that is just to shut down those mutant proteins not express them anymore and so you can just sort of be quiet those signals of foreignness um, other ways include things like sending out hormones to recruit t regulatory cells that are part of the normal ramping down of the immune response so it says you know, nothing to see here you move along other ways are to express cell surface signals that tell immune cells to stop reacting to them. In fact, kill the immune cells. This is the PDL1 um, ligand that I'm thinking about. So some of those are collaborative, like maybe pre- you might need more than one cell to produce a hormone to, to attract T regulatory cells, but some of them can be done by a single cell, like suppressing its immune, the immune um, antigen that the immune system is is detecting or killing off any immune cells that comes to try to, to kill it. So sometimes it requires cooperation and sometimes it doesn't. Okay. Yeah. I figured you'd need a coordinated activity to, to orchestrate something like that. Otherwise you'd be incredibly vulnerable. Yes. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. Um, and this is a problem. F- well, one of the big breakthroughs in cancer therapy has been interfering with these mechanisms of evading the immune system. So allowing the immune system to, to see the tumor again and, and, and attack it. But so these are important to understand. And, and the main ones are to interfere with these signals like the PDL1, or there's another one called CTLA4. If you block those uh, checkpoints, this is called immune checkpoint blockade, um, then you can allow the tumors to start, I'm sorry, the immune system to start seeing the tumor again. Um, but those don't, let's see, those, there are, since there are multiple ways of evading the immune system, then the tumor can still evolve. Uh, other ways of getting around the immune system. So sometimes those work and sometimes the patient relapses with new phenotypes that can invade the immune system. Oh, yeah, I forgot to ask you one more question about the heterogeneity. Um, Mm -hmm. So again, has anyone spatially mapped a tumor? And if so, like what substructures do you observe in terms of like genetic mutations, you know, clonal lineages? Do Do they tend to form certain structures inside of a tumor? Yeah, actually, it's a good question. So, uh, Daryl Shibata has done this at USC, and what they found something really fascinating, which is if you map out sort of the genetic structure of these different clones, you can find the same clone on the opposite side of like a colorectal cancer mixed with other clones. So it's, they're not, you know, you sort of, we would expect these clones to be sort of contiguous blobs, right? You know, a, a mutant shows up and it grows locally and another mutant shows up somewhere else and it grows locally and maybe they have some interface where they're competing but um, in many tumors, and particularly in these uh, colorectal cancers that Daryl Shabata looked at, the, the clones were kind of mixed together. And then and centimeters away from each other, you find the same clone. And that changed how we think about how tumors grow. But, um, and that led to what they call the Big Bang hypothesis, where uh, it's like the, the start of the universe, that something happens at the, at the initial formation of the tumor or the initial form of the universe. And then it rapidly expands with exponential growth. And you can actually reconstruct some of those early events by the patterns you see in the later time. But And all of that uh, suggested that there wasn't a lot of natural selection once you got a full-blown cancer. Once, once it, the, the pre-cancer had evolved enough mutations to, to generate the full-blown cancer, then it seems to take off. And in about a third of colorectal cancers, there's no evidence of further natural selection that happens. It's all neutral evolution after that point. So mapping out... The structure, the spatial structure of these clones actually led to uh, insights into the dynamics of the growing of those uh, clones. There's been other work by Nick Naven at MD Anderson 
and um, confirmed also by Daryl Shibata that the if you look at the surface of a tumor versus where it has invaded through the basement membrane, which is what caused what defines it as malignant, our assumption had been that some mutant clone had evolved the ability to invade. And so you would see a single clone sort of invading down through the, the membrane. And that if you looked across the surface, you would see different clones, but then the invasion one should be something that caused by a mutation. Well, both in colorectal cancer and in breast cancer, evidence looks like there's multiple clones that are invading at the same time. And it's not a single clone. And in fact, it doesn't seem to be a single sort of innovation that allows uh, invasion. So that was also came from mapping out the sort of spatial structure of these different uh, mutant cells. Well, wouldn't that tell you then that cancer may not just be random mutation, but a, a forced maladaptation, you know, a, a group of cells in a tissue under some metabolic or otherwise stress for long mm-hmm. enough that, you know, they, they use up all their tricks in their bag and then they, they, they maladapt. But now they, along with the maladaption comes de-differentiation and, you know, some maybe out of control characteristics like, you know, cancer characteristics. Well, I think um, I would say something similar to that, which is, I think it implies that there's important things going on in the environment in the microenvironment or the ecology of the tumor that's allowing the invasion. So, um, Bob Gatenby at Moffitt Cancer Center has a, a nice theory that cells that are that find themselves in these hypoxic areas of the tumor, these low oxygen areas, will be under selection to switch to an anaerobic metabolism, glycolytic metabolism, which is like what your muscles do when you when you're running out of oxygen and you're exercising, and it produces lactic acid. Right, we know that from sort of acid burns from our exercise, and they. Th- think that then these cells are under in this environment where they're producing lots of acid. And so there's selection on the cancer cells to survive and, and thrive in that acid environment. And then, then the fact that they're producing acid and they're good at living in that acid environment allows them to compete with the cells that are even in the normal oxygen areas of the tumor and start reinvading. And that, that acid itself helps them dissolve through the basic membranes and invade into the neighboring tissues. So that's a whole sort of environmental story about how invasion might happen without particular mutation happening. Mm, so okay. that's how I'm guessing the explanation for this is, is there's changes in, in that environment of the tumor, possibly caused by the tumor or their interaction with the tumor with the normal cells that lead to the ability to invade. Yeah, it's just weird. Why would there be selective pressure that causes, let's say, random mutation, and then that pressure goes away, and then it comes back, and then it goes away, and then, it, you know, it's just a strange thing. I would think it's either there all the time or it's not just as, you know, deliberate adaptation, you know, from the cells would be there all the time or not. Yeah. I think, I think the mutations are there all the time. I think, I mean, we know that just in our normal cells in our body, they're not perfect when they divide and they copy their DNA, they make mistakes. So, so mutations are happening all the time. And then we see in cancer during the development prior to cancer in these precancers, you see, increases in the mutation rate. So you see destabilization of the genome. You get like the error correcting machinery gets degraded. And so they're not catching as many errors anymore, or they start having trouble segregating their chromosomes. There's a variety of different ways they get unstable. And so the mutation rate can go up by orders of magnitude, like two or three orders of magnitude. So we think that typically cancers are mutators. They're highly mutant. And so that's going on all the time. And it's just sort of random luck or good luck or bad luck, whether or not the mutations that cells acquire are beneficial for them or, or bad for them, deleterious for them. So, and then that of course interacts with what's in their micro, their little environment, what mutations are actually good in their microenvironment, environment, different 
will differ from environment to environment. Yeah, speaking of microenvironments, if I imagine a tumor in my colon and it's heterogeneous, I would think each different cell that is heterogeneous would attract a di- different localized microbiome and which mm-hmm. would produce slightly different metabolites. So mm-hmm. what would you see in terms of like the local microbiomes of a tumor? It would it would probably have, I don't know, thousands of different localized microbiome colonies, which I don't I don't see how they would coordinate. What would that do with again metabolite production with yeah. again, the whole interaction? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think it's a really interesting question because it, you expect a sort of cycle. It's, it both goes both directions, right? The, the cancer cells are producing different metabolites. They're producing a different microenvironment, which is selecting for microbes that are good at living in that environment. And the microbes are changing the environment with their metabolites and changing the selective pressures on the, the tumors. And this actually leads to a, a prediction that Athena Actipus and I have made which is that there should be some microbes that are particularly well adapted to a cancer or a precancer tissue. And those microbes would be under selection to grow that tissue, to increase their environment, their niche. And so it may be some, there may be some cases where the growth of a precancer or even a cancer is being driven in part by the microbes that are benefiting from that microenvironment. And this is, I think, particularly likely in cases like the colorectal cancers you're bringing up or in Barrett's esophagus, which is the precancers in the esophagus, they have this crypt type architecture that are like, look like little wells. And those are, I think, little incubators. They're little environments that can grow bacteria. Um, but people t- don't typically think of them as incubators. They think of them as just increasing the surface area for absorption of liquids or something in the colon. But they are these little niches for microbes to grow in. And so if there's a mutant niche, if there's a precancerous niche like this, these uh, crypts, then there'd be selection for the microbes to get those crypts to divide and create more crypts like them um, to provide more of an environment. So what are some big questions that you're trying to answer right now where you feel like you have some good insight into and you're getting close to answers? The two, there's two big questions that I'm really excited about and interested in. One is that nature has already found ways of preventing cancer. So I sort of alluded to this when I was talking about looking at cancer across species. So we, for the first time, we're getting data on which species are more cancer prone and which species are more cancer resistant. And so then you can look into the biology of the species that are getting very little cancer and try to ask why, why are they able to, to avoid, avoid or suppress cancer? So that's based on a, an old, an old question called Pito's paradox. So Sir Richard Pito is a famous cancer epidemiology, epidemiologist who's one of the people that figured out that smoking was causing cancer. And he also pointed out back in the 70s that a mouse has a thousand times fewer cells than a human and only a two-year lifespan. And so if all things were equal, should never be getting any cancer if it had the same biology as a human. But they do get cancer. In fact, if you protect them from predators, uh, different strains of mice, some of them will get, 50% of them will get cancer, some 90% of them will get cancer. But the interesting side of this paradox is to look at large organisms like elephants and whales. A whale has a thousand times more cells than a human, approximately the same lifespan. And so if a whale has the same biology of a human, they'd just be getting tons of cancer and they never even get grow lar- large enough to reproduce. So there's been a lot of selection on whales over the millennia to evolve ways of suppressing cancer long enough for them to successfully reproduce. And we're trying to track down the biology of that. So that's, that's one big question I'm excited about and just discovering these, these species and patterns of cancer susceptibility across species. The other big thing I'm excited about is applying these evolutionary ideas to do better cancer therapy. 
And most of these ideas actually come out of agriculture and pest management because the pest managers have a, a similar problem that we do. They spray a field with pesticide. They kill off most of the pests. But they select for mutant pests that are resistant to the pesticide, just like we apply chemotherapy to a tumor and kill most of the cancer cells, but select for mutant cells that are resistant to our chemotherapies. So there's a, there's a variety of ideas that have, that they've developed in agriculture for dealing and controlling pests. And the key point here is they, they try to control pests. They don't try to eradicate them or cure the the fields per se. And I think this is a radical change for oncology. If we can use these strategies to control cancer and turn it into a chronic disease that we can manage and live with like diabetes rather than an acute lethal disease that kills us within a year or two. If people have gotten the same chemo drugs, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of times. Mm-hmm. Do we know, is there a reliable next step or is there reliable mutant creation that has certain characteristics based on that? And if so, could we deliberately drive certain cancers in a certain direction? And then, you know, now they're, they've differentiated to a point where they're vulnerable in a different way. And now they can be knocked out by drug number two. Let's say. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great idea. So this idea of sort of, selecting for particular using drugs to select for particular states that we can deal with better. That's called uh, evolutionary herding. Like sort of herding the population in the direction you want. And the idea of selecting for one, for using one drug to, to select for a tumor that's then vulnerable to a second drug. That's what that's called double bind therapy, um, which Bob Gatenby came up with or related one with I came up with was called the sucker's gambit. Can you, use one drug to kill off cells that are going to be resistant to your second drug. Can you sucker the tumor into its vulnerable state by, by eliminating those resistant cells and then hit it with your, your drug and your main drug. So people are interested in that. We haven't gotten very far in, in actually, actually developing that, but we, what we do can do, what the, the most exciting stuff for me is called adaptive therapy. And the observation here is that there's some fitness cost of resistance so, for example, one form of therapeutic resistance is cells turn on these cellular pumps that just pump all the chemicals out of the cell before the chemicals can kill the cell. But those pumps can suck up uh, some measurement by some measurements half of all of the energy budget of the cell. So it's a big cost. So if there's no if there's no drugs around that need pumping out, those resistant cells are paying a huge cost for no benefit. So in the absence of drugs, typically resistant cells have a disadvantage against res- sensitive cells which means that if you are careful about how you apply the drugs, you can actually, and you actually keep sensitive cells around, you can use the sensitive cells to outcompete the resistant cells and keep those resistant cells under control for long periods of time. That's an idea that came out of this agriculture, this pest management. And it's, it's worked in a couple mouse experiments and it's worked in the first human clinical trial. Uh, this is all worked from Bob Gate me again at the Moffitt Cancer Center. Um, there was a clinical trial in, in uh, a metastatic prostate cancer there that it's just a small trial, but it, it worked really well. So we're trying to start more trials about, on this. And the, the thing that's exciting to me about it is this, this strategy doesn't depend on a particular drug. It could be applied to any drug and it doesn't depend on a particular kind of cancer. So it could be applied to any cancer. It doesn't require the, the invention and testing and FDA approval of a new drug. It just requires a clinical trial to show these strategies of maintaining sensitive cells and controlling cancer long-term lead to longer survival times and better quality of life than the standard of care where you just hit it with your maximum tolerable dose. For a given cancer, if they have five different chemotherapy protocols, why not 
reduce them and make like a poly pill or a poly, you know, chemotherapy treatment where you have, you know, let's say you sequence as much of the tumor as you can and you sequence mm-hmm. uh, X number of dominant clone strains. Mm-hmm. And then you pick the chemos that will target as many different ones of those as possible. And then, you know, give them less of each, but mm-hmm. maybe would that work? So uh, maybe it's hard to find multiple targeted drugs. Um, what people have done, is, of course, is just try combining different drugs that have different mechanisms for killing the cells. And that's actually the standard of care in most cancers is you get a multi-drug cocktail, um, sometimes as many as four drugs. You you'd probably know it works really well in HIV. Right? Our, we've been able to basically maintain indefinite for at least control for decades of HIV with a three-drug cocktail. It, in cancer biology, it doesn't work nearly as well. So adding one drug, going up from one drug to two drugs, in most cancers buys you a few months of extra survival time, maybe 10 months if you're lucky a year. And adding a third drug then, at least in a meta-analysis of lung cancer, adding a third drug had zero uh, effect on increase, didn't increase survival time at all. And one issue here, of course, is the toxicities pile up as well as the the good parts. So, so it's not working very well to combine drugs in, in cancer. What you're talking about is a little bit different, which is really targeting. If you could like sequence a lot of the tumor and figure out the dominant clones and see, can you find a drug that's good for one drug, good for each clone? You, those might not, or those might be particularly effective. How, however, the challenge there is that we know that in many cases, the cells that are resistant to a drug are so rare that you can't pick them up when you just take a biopsy and sequence that biopsy. They could be one in a million or one in a billion cells. Um, so that that's a big challenge for that kind of strategy. Well, what's strange too, right, is if you knock out most of the cells, but the cancer still comes back, are the current cells that you observe essentially holding back those uh, those low frequency mutants that then would take over with chemo? But you know, if you don't give chemo, perhaps they're being held back by the current cells you have. Yeah, we think they are. Yeah, we think they are. But we think because those rare cells, those resistant cells are paying some kind of fitness cost that before you apply a drug, they have a hard time increasing because they're being outcompeted by the the sensitive cells. So it's only when you clear the playing field, what we call competitive release, um, that those cells can, can really flourish. Well, it's like the microbiome. If you, uh, you know, if you get an overgrowth of C. difficile. Yeah because you've had some kind of dysbiosis or problem. Right. I was actually going to ask you, um, has anyone combined or do people just tend to get antibiotics along with chemo? Like what if you did a course of antibiotics, you know, you, you disrupt every cell's microbiome. I wonder uh-huh. what it would do to cancer. And then you applied chemo. What would that do? Or if you applied antibiotics with chemo or periodically, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? What would happen? Yeah. I, I know that there's been interest fairly recently from the National Cancer Institute in looking at the interaction between microbiome and therapeutic response. Um, but I don't know any of the results yet, so I don't have anything in- informed to say about that. I think you could you could look at antibiotics. You could also look at probiotics. You know, if you increase a particular kind of microbe, is would it help a, a therapy? And I think one of the issues here is that the microbes in the gut can affect the metabolism of the cancer drugs so that there can be sort of an interaction that way as well as the more indirect interactions of the biology of the microbes in the, in the host cells. Yeah. I've heard some drugs, their effect comes not from their application to the cells, but you know, the microbiome chews them up, makes metabolites that then do affect the cells. Yeah. A lot of the drugs we use are called pro drugs. So they have to be metabolized before they actually become effective. 
And most of those products are being metabolized in the liver by the human cells and turned into the chemotherapy in the liver. But yeah, there, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some of them are actually being metabolized by the, by the microbes. And then what microbes you have are going to be a big effect on, on how the, the therapy plays out. So how long do you solve cancer again? <laughs> I'm, just kidding, I'm just kidding. No, no, it's actually a really relevant question. So to get back to this, this adaptive therapy, this sort of uh, therapy is based on pest management. I am excited about it because it doesn't require the very long period of time usually happens between discovery and uh, impact in the clinic. That, that's often 20 to 30 years between the discovery of something new in biology and getting it into the clinic. This only, and I said only in air, air quotes, this only requires a clinical trial. Now running a clinical trial is expensive. So there's years to raise the money to, to run it. And then there's year, there's some number of years that for the clinical trial to run. And then, then there's the question of whether the, the doctors are convinced enough by the results of that trial to change their practice. And often they'll want to see multiple clinical trials. So we're talking more on the order of a 10-year horizon than a 20 or 30-year horizon, but it, this is going to have to require a clinical trial on each type of cancer. Um, so if they're uh, I'm hoping to get people excited about doing this. The other logistical problem we have here is that these trials would be run with current drugs that are already approved. Um, and some of them may not even be under patent anymore. So there may not be a drug company that has a financial interest in, in funding the trial, which means that we'd have to fund it through the NIH or the National Cancer Institute. Um, so there's sort of restricted uh, opportunities for funding some of these trials. That's the bad news. The good news is that this, the hurdles are much lower for this kind of, uh, these, these kinds of um, innovations. And I, I think that this approach of managing tumors and controlling them um, has the potential for changing all of oncology, all kinds of cancers. And it just, all we have to do is run those clinical trials to show it. Well, very good, Carlo. I like the fact that you're, you're taking references from so many disparate fields, you know, from growing crops and all kinds of things. And that's great. I think it's going to lead you to a lot of innovation. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? So uh, the Arizona Cancer Evolution Center, if you just Google that, you'll find us. It's uh, our ACE is our acronym, Arizona Cancer Evolution. So ace.asu.edu at Arizona State University is the website for that. That's probably the, the best place, place to look for us, our work. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Carlo, thank you for coming. It's been a great call. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for... for... If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.